Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. What does justice mean to those who've been tortured by state actors? How should we hold governments accountable for killing and torturing their citizens? When there has been acts of violence in a society, and if you look at the example of Spain, when there has been a national decision to both have an amnesty law that says we're not going to investigate or prosecute those crimes ever, and even more than that, pact of forgetting, almost like a decision on a societal basis to say we don't even want to talk about this, we just have to turn the page. So that act of saying we're not going to have memory about some things that have happened ends up marginalizing and making invisible the very people who the dictatorship uh, perpetrated crimes against. This week, we speak with Robert Behar about a new exceptional documentary called The Silence of Others, which chronicles how the victims of Franco's 40-year dictatorship in Spain have been seeking justice decades after the crimes were committed, and why, for them and many others, forgetting is not an option. Es simplemente un olvido, una amnistía de todos para todos. Un olvido de todos para todos. In 1977, two years after the death of Spain's dictator, General Francisco Franco, the country instituted a general amnesty, effectively barring legal action against the perpetrators of Franco's crimes. This pact of forgetting has never been repealed. But in recent years, victims are taking legal action to bring these crimes to trial, not in Spain, but thousands of miles away in Argentina. Filmed over six years, The Silence of Others reveals the epic fight against the state-imposed amnesia of crimes against humanity. It gives victims and their families a voice as they organize a groundbreaking international lawsuit and fight this pact of forgetting around forced disappearances, torture, and kidnapping of small children, crimes that took place between 1939 and 1975. The families work through their fears and break the taboo of silence to seek justice. Khalil Bandib spoke with Robert Bahar, the co-director of The Silence of Others. But first, we hear the voice of Jose Chato Maria Galante, who was imprisoned and tortured for fighting against the dictatorship. He's speaking through an interpreter about his experience during a question and answer session following the screening of The Silence of Others at Sheffield a Documentary Film Festival in 2018. Lo que me da esperanza es considerar que la pelea por los derechos humanos, nuestra pelea por la justicia, eh, no es algo que afecte solo a las víctimas, 
sino que afecta al conjunto de la sociedad. What gives me hope is that the struggle that we victims have is not something that affects us, affects us all, uh, only us victims, but affects the entire society. No es algo que eh, haya pasado hace muchos años, sino se trata de crímenes actualmente presentes. No, something that happened a long time ago is crimes that are still present, that are still crimes. No solo porque esos crímenes no prescriben, sino porque hoy hay, sigue habiendo gente en fosas comunes. Not just because these crimes against humanity don't have a statute of limitations, but that there are still today thousands and thousands of people, I added the thousands part, um, in mass graves in Spain. Porque hoy sigue habiendo niños robados con su identidad perdida. There's still thousands of children that, are, that, have, that were stolen that have no identity of a lost identity. Porque hoy sigue habiendo torturadores libres por las calles. That we still have torturers that are free and walking on the street. Y finalmente, no solamente afecta a toda la sociedad, sino nos afecta a todos, afecta a la humanidad. Not only it affects the entire uh, society, but it affects the entire humanity. Y más en un momento en que hemos convertido el Mediterráneo en una inmensa fosa común. Even more now that we, be, we turn the Mediterranean Sea into a, a huge mass grave. Donde se están negando derechos humanos básicos todos los días a centenares o millones de personas. Where there hundreds of thousands of people are being denied their basic human rights every day. Y, y hoy estoy obligado a recordar que mi primera visión sobre lo que había pasado en mi país se la debo a George Orwell. And today I am forced to say that the first vision of what had happened in my country, I owe it to George Orwell. Cuando yo leí homenaje a Cataluña, supe lo que había pasado en mi país. When I read homage to Catalonia, I understood what had happened in my country. Y entendí que había seres humanos capaces de moverse miles de kilómetros para luchar por la libertad de pueblos que no eran el suyo. And I understood that there were people that were able to move thousands of kilometers, or miles, as kilometers here, to fight for the freedom of people that were not their own. Ese es el ejemplo que a mí me mantiene y me ha mantenido y me mantendrá siempre. That's the example that has always maintained me, kept me going on, and will always keep me going on. Muchas gracias. Thank you. That was the voice of Jose Chato Maria Galante, who was imprisoned and tortured for fighting against the dictatorship. Now here is Khalil's interview with Robert Behar, the co-director of The Silence of Others. Robert Behar, welcome to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Robert, first let me start by congratulating you on a moving very moving and hauntingly beautiful film. Viewers will probably have to bring their handkerchiefs or a box of tissues with them to the theater. I do recommend they go to the theater to see it because it's impossible to watch this movie without crying. Some of the shots of the monument of the victims of civil war in this film are absolutely devastating. I love the way you captured those sculptures against the surrounding landscape. Tell us a little bit about that monument, if we can begin with that. Well, in Spain, there are very few monuments to victims 
of the Spanish Civil War and who were repressed by Franco, who became the dictator, and to victims of the repression that took place really throughout this 40-year dictatorship. And so the monument that's featured in the film, it's these four figures, I think they're made out of granite, on the top of a mountain. And we discovered them by accident. We were driving up the, the hill to go to a little town, and we saw just this incredible vista with these four figures silhouetted against the sunset. And so we stopped and we went out and we saw the plaque and that this that these four statues were dedicated to the forgotten victims of the civil war in Spain and of the dictatorship. And it says in this valley, um, you know, the forgetting is full of memory. And we started going to those statues and we filmed them in different seasons and we filmed them in different ways. And we weren't quite sure what they would become, but the statues ended up becoming this leitmotif in the film where we used them in the very early in the film and then throughout. And we've come to think of the statues as the Olympus Mm. of the victims in Spain And one of the most extraordinary and heartbreaking things, but also perhaps it speaks a certain kind of truth, is that a few hours after the statues were inaugurated, someone from nearby shot all of the statues. I should say they shot all of the men statues. And so now you see these bullet holes. Yes, I noticed those. I was wondering what those were. And so those are bullet holes. And and the sculptor decided not to repair the statues because the fact that someone would do that speaks to the present situation that this is not yet resolved in Spain. And so he left those bullet holes there on the statues so that everyone sees both this act of remembering the victims and this violence that in the present was perpetrated against them. That is continuing. One reason I was so interested in them, first of all, they visually, I think they just make the movie. It's just so spectacular. Yeah. It's just, oh, it's, you have to see it to understand it. But I also happen to be a, a sculptor, and I've created a number of public monuments in the same spirit about memory. And one of them, <laughs> sure enough, was also vandalized. One, It was uh, in the honor of this uh, Palestinian-American who was killed. I don't know if you ever heard of the story in Santa Ana in uh, 1985 because it was yeah Alex Ode was his name and the same thing happened after we erected the statue in 1994 promptly after that every year or other year people would throw red paint at the sculpture so people those same people who killed him are still angry and they're still manifesting their hatred by throwing pots of, of red paint like they didn't kill him enough the first time so your That's film, shocking. your film shocking. on many, many levels really touches me for that reason. You know, the memory, the artistry that you create and, and remembering Thank these you. people. Your film, Silence of Others, is all about the importance of memory. Yes. I'd like you briefly to tell me, why is memory so important? Is it all about justice or revenge, or is there more than that? I, I think that when there has been acts of violence in a society. And if you look at the example of Spain, when there has been 
a national decision to both have an amnesty law that says we're not going to investigate or prosecute those crimes ever. And even more than that, pact of forgetting, almost like a decision on a societal basis to say, we don't even want to talk about this. We just have to turn the page. So that act of saying, we're not going to have memory about some things that have happened, ends up marginalizing and making invisible the very people who the dictatorship uh, perpetrated crimes against. And I think for, for people to feel that they are not even recognized as victims of crimes that took place and that society doesn't really want to know about their pain, that their children are not being educated about what took place. I think all of those are examples of what happens when you don't have memory. And creating memory, I think one aspect is the social memory, that society remembers something. And then there are these sort of, these pillars of transitional justice, these questions of how does a society have the truth about what happened? Can justice be can justice be done? In this case, there are still torturers who are out there. Can justice still be done? Can they be pursued? And then there's the question of reparation for victims and what can be done to recognize their status as victims and to apologize for what happened. None of that has happened in Spain. And victims and survivors of the crimes of the dictatorship are seeking various things on that spectrum. But it's very important to say, one of the characters in the film says, we are not seeking revenge. This is not about revenge. This is simply about justice. And so if a child has been stolen, if an extrajudicial killing has not been prosecuted, if a torture is still out there, then justice would suggest that those situations need to be remedied and those situations need to be pursued. And how about just the idea of never again? And Jorge Santayana saying, that those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Well, fundamentally, yes, absolutely. If you don't have that social memory in a society, if people don't know what happened, then it's easier for such terrible things to happen again. And some people would even argue that now we're seeing the rise of the ultra-right in many countries around the world, and that it's a moment where we need a lot of memory to look back at periods in history when there has been fascism or there has been authoritarian repression as a prophylactic against that. One of uh, the main uh, witnesses in your film, The Silence of Others, is an old, now toothless lady who was a child when some of the worst massacres happened in Spain during the Civil War. She seems positively haunted by the memories, and she herself almost ends up looking like a ghost herself, a spirit. Yes. She looks like a spirit hovering over the mass graves. How old is that lady by now? Do you know? Is she still alive? She passed away, but she, in those scenes, she was 84 years old. Mm. And her story is that in 1936, at the age of six, her mother was taken from this very small town called Pedro Bernardo. And along with 30 other people, her mother was executed. And in general, people would be accused of being a red or being a leftist. You know, these accusations would be made. 
And this was you know, during the Spanish Civil War, but these were civilians who were being taken from their homes and killed. And so her mother was killed and her father for his entire life would go every day to the road where that covered the mass grave where her body and these other bodies lay. And on her father's deathbed, he asked Maria Martin, his daughter, if she would continue that. And so in the film, you see a scene where Maria Martin is walking with a bouquet of flowers that she attaches to the guardrail of what's now a little highway in the countryside to commemorate where her mother's body lies. Yo tenía seis años cuando fueron a por mi madre. Es el sitio de la fosa. Es la fosa. Lo que pasa que no se ha destapado parte hasta ahora. Throughout her life, Maria Martin wrote letters. She wrote to the king. She wrote to the parliament. She wrote to judges, to the mayor, anyone who would, who she could think of, saying, I want to be able to exhume my mother's body from this mass grave and to bury her with dignity with the rest of my family. And she struggled her whole life for that. And she passed without being able to achieve that. Those requests fell on deaf ears. And in the film, you see her daughter take up that struggle and get involved in the lawsuit that the film follows. And now her daughter is fighting for the same thing. One person in your film, Silas of Others, makes the point that you don't see street names or monuments for Hitler in Germany. So why continue honoring the fascist Franco in Spain? Spain is not alone in this troubling conundrum that you have in the US. We were now worried again about fascism overtaking the state. But even under Barack Obama, after George W. Bush's torture regime, to his lasting shame, Obama refused to examine what had happened under W's rule and said, essentially, we choose to look forward, not behind. What a great positive attitude for the future. Is something similar going on in Spain where the state, regardless of current government, left or right government, refuses to take a look at the sordid past of torture and genocide? Yes, it is. And so the two main political parties the PP, El Partido Popular, which is the conservative party, and the Socialist Workers Party, which now is kind of in the center left, with Podemos on the left of that. The, the two main parties in general have tried not to explore these issues very much. And on the conservative side, it's been really kind of vehement. And the, the conservative party has a lot of roots going back to the dictatorship. But for parties across the spectrum, this idea of a pact of forgetting really was solidified in the 1970s. And everyone kind of had this consensus, we must turn the page, we must look forward and not look back. And while there's some openness to doing symbolic measures, to changing some street names now, to, you know, they're talking about trying to get the dictator Franco's body out of this giant mausoleum where it is, but to really pursue justice, to go after those 
torturers who are still out there and have never been prosecuted, or to go after cabinet ministers who might have signed execution orders. There's very little political will, except on the real left and Podemos or other parties, to pursue those crimes. And, and so, yes, I think the parallel that you're drawing is a powerful one. You just alluded to it. Recently, the socialist government of Pedro Sanchez has made, let's call it courageous decision, to exhume Franco's remains from the famous mausoleum built to his glory in the Valle de los Caídos, yes. which in English means the Valley of the Fallen, built to honor a fascist dictator who himself was responsible for most of the fallen. Do you see this as an important step, symbolically, a step in the right direction, and a source of hope? And where does the resistance to such moves come from, other than the state itself? It seems that Spain is still d deeply divided. There seems to be a lot of support for the legacy of Franco. Well, I think that the government's initiative to take Franco's body out of the Valley of the Fallen, as you described it, it's really... Even architecturally, it's a giant fascist monument with a 150-meter-tall cross, I think. That initiative would be a very positive, symbolic step to say, we are not going to have things in Spain that honor or celebrate the legacy of the dictatorship. And we're going to demonstrate that it's time to remove those symbols and it would be, I think, a measure of respect towards victims and survivors of crimes from the dictatorship. But I think almost universally people say that's not enough. That would be a great symbolic step and an important one. But what about the 114,000 bodies that are still in mass graves across Spain? Those bodies need to be exhumed and given back to families who can give them a dignified burial. That's as basic as Antigone, the right to bury one's dead. Well, what about cases of stolen children? Why not create a national DNA database so that people who suspect that their babies have, were stolen you know, during the dictatorship or even thereafter can try and reunite with them? And what about these cases of torture? So it's a really good symbolic step, but it needs to be the beginning of something really profound. You know, one great thing about your movie is that it, it really brings a universal message. It's not something that only people from Spain can relate to. Right. And, right. and very unfortunately, because it means many other countries have suffered similar horrors just like Spain, Iran, since the Iranian revolution, has not only produced undeclared mass graves of political prisoners, but also like Spain, has refused to acknowledge these massacres of civilians. Back in 1988, the massacres in 32 cities took place within a matter of weeks, leaving mass graves throughout the country. Mass killings took place in all these places, there right. are other places like in Palestine, Israel, there have been massacres, Palestinians, uh, Syria, as we speak, unfortunately, the past few years have seen similar horrors. Just like in your film, Amnesty International reported that the Iranian regime was constructing, as we speak, roads 
over several locations where some of the estimated 5,000 victims of this political purge that happened in 1988 are believed to have been buried. That's what your, your film reminded me of. There are also all these mass graves in, in Spain that are unacknowledged and are being probably trampled over. Is this still happening as we speak? Are they digging up mass graves just by doing public works in, in Spain? So in Spain, in terms of exhumations, there are some uh, NGOs and really grassroots associations, especially including the Association for the Recovery of uh, Historic Memory, that are doing exhumations where they can. And they raise money to do this. They um, and they do this privately. And of course, they, they have to report what they're doing and everything is, is coordinated. Um, but in many cases, it's just impossible. And so in the case of Maria Martin, there's a public road. And so even if there was money and a private association with forensic anthropologists who could do the work, you can't take up that road without the government's collaboration. And so there are these efforts that have very powerfully resulted in, I think, more than 8,000, and the remains of more than 8,000 victims have been exhumed and returned to their families. But so that's 8,000, and there's 114,000 that have not been. To pursue this parallel with Iran even further, Iran is a theocracy. So all of this has happened in the name of God, <laughs> so right. to speak. And those who know a little bit of the history of Spain remember that Franco was very, very close to the Catholic Church. And that was one of his main calling cards, that he was bringing back the monarchy, bringing back the church against the evils of communism and anarchism and all that. What has been the attitude of the Catholic Church in Spain vis-a-vis -vis this legacy of Franco? Are they still half-heartedly supporting it? Uh, what is their attitude towards this question of memory in Spain? You know, I, I don't think there is support from the Church for pursuing uh, and reopening these questions of memory, but um, I don't know in recent years what their position has been. But what is really interesting is that throughout the dictatorship, exactly as you say, there really were these three pillars. There was the, the Falange, the fascist party, there was the military, and there was the church. And those three pillars were all very important to Franco's power and to how the dictatorship functioned. And so if, if you look back, there were, for example, priests and nuns working in many hospitals. And so when you get into investigations of cases of stolen babies, it often comes up, oh, well, there was a nun who came and took my baby, or a nun or a priest said this to me. And there have been um, actually trials where, um, there was a famous one with someone named Sor Maria, um, where they've tried to bring some of these people in to testify, to get information about the stolen baby cases. I think that the Judge Servini, the judge in Argentina who's investigating these crimes, has even uh, requested information from the Vatican in the hope that perhaps uh, they have information about the stolen children cases in Spain. 
in your film again i love to repeat the name just just so people thank will, you yes so people will go and see it in your film silence of others you document the irony of a former colony of spain like argentina being historically ahead of spain and overturning its own self-amnesty law passed by the military fascist junta in 1983 this overturning happened 2005 in argentina which allowed argentina to become more aggressive even in spain with these sort of things when if ever do you think spain will finally reverse its own amnesty law of 1977 vis-a-vis all these war criminals that were there until 1975 in power will it only do this after all the war criminals are dead and gone i'm sad to say that i'm not sure how hopeful to be I think two years ago, or no, I think it was in March 2018, I think, there was an initiative in the parliament to modify Spain's amnesty law so that it could not be applied to crimes against humanity. And if they could modify the amnesty law in that way, it would allow the prosecution of torture and stealing of children and extrajudicial killings and slave labor and these other crimes to move forward. That did not pass in the parliament. And it did not pass in part because the party that's now in power, the Socialist Workers Party, the PSOE, did not support that. And so when you have a situation where even a very significant bloc on the left is not supporting a change like that, it means that it's very, very hard to have hope about whether that will happen or not. Part of what we dream of doing with with a film, and part of what this film actually really is helping to do, is that a film can be a tool for discourse. And so you know, sometimes documentary filmmakers make a film about a situation and it doesn't necessarily have an opportunity to be shown in a way that could change that situation. But this film has been released in Spain. When it was released in theaters last year, there, were, there was press coverage, of course, on the left, but even on the right, in a very conservative newspaper, there was a headline saying, should we forget the pact of forgetting? The, the film won the Goya in Spain, which is like the Oscar in Spain. And recently it was shown on public television. More than a million people saw the film. And two hours before the broadcast, Pedro Sanchez, the prime minister of Spain, tweeted encouraging everyone to see the film and the importance of thinking about memory, thinking about reparation and the situation of victims. And so using a film this way you gives me hope when you see younger generations watching this. And now I understand how these pieces connect to each other. It's very important that we talk about this. Those things give me hope that as people start to have different stories in their minds and different ways to think about what happened, and you kind of change it from this political divide, which you said earlier, you know, there is a divide around this, but if you make it more a human rights question than a political question, I actually think there could be a lot of support. And so that's where I find hope. Well, congratulations on the award. And I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that it's been shown in Spain. It's gotten this, yes. this award. I was also very happy to see Pedro Almodovar's uh, name yes. on, the, on the film. He's one of my favorite yes. <laughs> directors worldwide. And to see his name as a producer, that was also very cheerful for me. 
to see uh, somebody as mainstream as he being there making a statement on your film. You just mentioned the mass media. What is their general attitude? Because we have a similar problem in other countries. I want to come back to that. What is the mass media's attitude in general in Spain after Franco about Franco's legacy, about these zones of shadows and things still being swept under the rug? Well, I think a lot of the mass media kind of has its place on the political spectrum. And so certain newspapers like El País, for example, they tend to have features. You know, they have a, someone who has covered these issues that in Spain they call historic memory, these issues. And so there are certain publications and certain TV channels that do cover these issues because they kind of represent the audience that wants to talk about them. And then there are others that look at them in a completely different way and either don't cover them or see them really as something that where you're almost stirring up trouble or stirring up division if you bring them up. And that's often the argument that's used in order to suppress these discussions is don't reopen old wounds. It'll only cause trouble. Yes. And to victims and survivors, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, and of course their descendants, to say that these old wounds have healed is, um, is disingenuous. These are not wounds that have healed. The families that suffer them actually pass these traumas down from generation to generation. And so when you hear that, whether it's from the mainstream media or whether it's from an important political official, uh, I think that's, that's a, a great, great disservice. And it's something we're very familiar with here in this country. I was pleased to see that your film, uh, Silence of Others, was, was reviewed by the mainstream in this country. That was very good to see. Although this country's uh, media is very good at covering other people's genocides, not our own, <laughs> unfortunately. It's much easier to complain about Franco or Hitler than what's going on, what has happened in this country. Other colonial empires, not just Spain, former empires like France, the UK, the US, Turkey, uh, have yes. committed similar or worse atrocities and genocides in third world countries and have never apologized to this day or punished the culprits. And they continue to refuse to teach their own children their national history. Right. Part of the justification, which is no moral justification, but one that is sort of a Darwinian justification, is that only defeated empires such as Germany and Japan have to fess up to what they've done because they were defeated and they were forced to. We made sure to force them to pay reparations, to have to confront their history, teach it to their own children. You feel Spain is allowing the same logic that repenting and bringing justice to victims is strictly for defeated nations. You know, I've heard maybe one or two people say something like that, but I think those have often been voices kind of from the very far right. I've heard, I once heard a vicious comment where someone said, well, they, they, they lost the war. They need to get over it. <laughs> um, but, but that came from the very far right. I really don't want to characterize that as the mainstream 
reaction. I think there is a lot of empathy for the suffering of victims, actually. What I think is that the moment of Spain's transition from dictatorship to democracy, the decision to forget was really viewed almost as an important, like a heroic choice to say, we're going to put the past behind us. And if you look at transitional justice, what is that decision? It basically means we are going to trade off justice to get peace. And so then you have to ask yourself, can you trade off justice to get peace? Many people would say, yes, Spain had a relatively peaceful transition and they achieved a very solid democracy that has blossomed. And so then has peace been achieved? If you have thousands of mass graves with 114,000 bodies, if you have unresolved cases of stolen children, if you have torturers walking on the street with impunity, and that's where I think when people say, look, we traded off justice for peace, I think then you have to look back and say, peace has not been achieved for the entire society. To this day, Spain is still very condescending with some of its former colonies like Venezuela or Cuba. Can you see a future where it will apologize for the genocides committed in Latin America, like in Peru, for example? I mean, do you see a connection between the lack of repentance in Latin America for all the, the, the atrocities committed by the Spaniards and its current refusal to bring the Franco regime officials to justice? Is that part of the same logic, the same reflex? You, to be totally honest, I, I'm not sure if those things are connected or not. It, it's hard for me to analyze that one. Because the lack of memory encourages repetition. The Argentines, for example, the junta, a lot of military top generals were saying these very words that we can commit these horrors because we will win. We're not like Germany. They went after progressives. They went after Jews because right. they were Jewish. And they were saying, yes, Hitler... The Germans have had to pay because they lost the war. But we are not losing the war. Therefore, we should be able to do this and nobody will complain about it. That's just chilling. And often when you hear this argument, we must forget, if you trace where it's coming from, it's coming from the perpetrators. <laughs> of course, the perpetrators want, want to, to forget. forget. It's very self-serving. Right. Uh, Spain and their former prime minister, Jose Maria Asnar, was perhaps the most enthusiastic proponent of war in Iraq, along with Bush and Tony Blair of the UK. And it can be argued that this war in Iraq, I mean, a lot of people, I personally will call it a genocide. If a million Iraqis were killed as a result, it is the definition of a genocide. Do you see a connection between this refusal to acknowledge the Franco past and Aznar's enthusiasm for a modern crusade against defenseless civilian populations in the Middle East. You know, where I would take that is, I would also turn that around and first start with the United States and then come back to Spain. Because if you go back to the end of the Second World War, for a while, Spain was ostracized from the global community because they had been associated with Hitler and Mussolini and with fascism in Europe. 
But as you reach the 1950s, Spain is accepted into the United Nations. And uh, the United States ends up building military bases in Spain because uh, the whole geopolitical situation has switched. Now it's all about the Cold War, and Spain is actually an important you know, geographical position for that. And so the United States played this role in collaborating with Franco. Franco became a friendly dictator. And when you look at those kinds of coalitions that come together, I, I think you, you see how later coalitions, like the coalition in, in the Iraq war, could come together. And, um, and, and to me, these are how so many tragedies of the 20th and now the 21st century have, have come about. It, it used to be in the name of the Cold War. Franco, yes, yes. Franco is a fascist, but he's on our exactly. side. He's fighting the communists. Now it's in the name of anti-terror or something else. Yeah, it's, it's still the same. Anti-terrorism. Yeah. It's still the same. In Argentina, some 30 years after the massacres and disappearances over, of over 30,000 Argentinian citizens, even after the general self-amnesty was overturned in 2005, some of the secret butchers inside the dark recesses of the military junta were still alive and still present there. They continue to threaten and sometimes even murder potential witnesses or whistleblowers who are seen as a threat to them. Is there a similar situation in Spain today? Are there threats overt or covert where former members of the Franco regime might strike at any time? I don't think there are direct threats. You know, people have always asked us, were there obstacles in making this film? And no, there, there really weren't. You know, Spain is a very comfortable um, democracy in those senses. It's a beautiful place to live. And so there aren't those kinds of threats, but there is something to observe which is that there is this continuity between the dictatorship and democracy. And there's actually a scene in the film where the spokesman for the Francisco Franco Foundation himself, this is a foundation that couldn't exist in Germany. You couldn't have an Adolf Hitler Foundation. But in Spain, there's a Francisco Franco Foundation. And their spokesperson actually complained that many of the politicians in the democracy didn't highlight their origins in the dictatorship. And so this is very interesting because if we had someone, one of the activists that we're following, describe the continuities between dictatorship and democracy, people might say, oh, well, let's dig into that, I'm not so sure. But here you have someone on the other side defending Franco's legacy and saying, why don't these officials acknowledge their proud roots in the regime? And so if you look at especially the judiciary and the various kinds of security forces, there are many continuities, whether it's um, the same people or whether it's the sons of or the daughters of, you know, continuing in those. And as a result, I think especially in the judiciary and in, in security forces, you will see reticence or to, to pursue some of this. And I'll, I'll give you an example. This didn't touch us, but there's a documentary filmmaker who actually was just sentenced to a year in jail. And he and his partner had gone 
And I guess they'd used a hidden camera, which was the premise of the case. But they had filmed a mass that was, you know, like a religious mass that was actually on, being honoring the dictatorship. And that's illegal. You can't honor the dictatorship. But instead of pursuing and investigating that, they investigated the filmmaker for violating the privacy of the people who were doing this mass. And so even though he was revealing something illegal to honor the dictatorship, he was sentenced to jail. Why do those things happen? And I think that leads back to this question about what are the ways that the shadows from the dictatorship persevere? In your film, one of the protagonists is a man who was tortured under Franco yes. and who says, one of my neighbors is the guy who tortured me and he's free yeah. and completely able to to function like anybody else. And there was something wrong with that picture, obviously. That, for, you know, everybody's happy now, the torturers and the former tortured people. That's what you were saying, that there's a, a dark side. There's still this uh, zone of unease. This country, Spain, has not atoned completely for what has done to its own citizens. And if you told that story to someone and said a victim of torture is living 500 meters from the notorious policeman who tortured him, no one would say, oh, you're talking about Spain. That's not what people think of when they think of Spain. And so I think that's one of the things the film does is it shows this other reality. And it shows this other reality in the hope that there's still time when something could be done about it. There's still time to remedy some of this if you could generate the political will. One famous uh, Spanish judge, to come back to this, what you were saying about somehow punishing the victims rather than, than yes. the, the culprits. One famous judge who became known worldwide, his name is Baltasar Garzon. He had the distinction of going after war criminals worldwide, not just in Spain, and had former dictator and war criminal Auguste Pinochet arrested in the UK. Yeah. The yeah. first time in the history, the first time that a former head of government had been arrested on the principle of universal jurisdiction. This great judge also went after other war criminals. Even Henry Kissinger was worried at some point whether he'd be able to travel normally internationally. Ariel Sharon as well. So he had no borders to who would come under his jurisdiction. Unfortunately, he was marginalized eventually and silenced after he dared to threaten the status quo in Spain. Tell us what happened to his career after 2008. So after Baltasar Garzón had done the investigations that, that you just described and really become famed as someone who was using universal jurisdiction to pursue these grave, grave crimes and to help bring down the impunity of Pinochet, he opened this investigation into the crimes of the Franco dictatorship. And I, I'm not sure. I think he was looking at crimes that had taken place going up until about 1955. And he was put on trial for violating Spain's amnesty law. And even though the judiciary had supported him in pursuing the same crimes in other countries, torture, the stealing of children, 
extrajudicial killings. Once he tried to look at Spain, he was blocked from doing that. And it was a very, very famous trial. There was a lot of international attention. Officially, he was acquitted of that charge, but he was actually disbarred for, I think, 11 years. Exactly. Effectively ending his career on a different charge. And a lot of commentators felt that it was, it was a technicality, but it was really a punishment for having investigated, tried to investigate the crimes of the dictatorship in Spain. And those ironies, I just think, are important. It's actually what you were saying earlier about the United States, right? So you had Spain, which had used its judiciary also to help pursue Rios Montt in Guatemala to pursue other kinds of very grave crimes. And then they would not look inward at that moment. And it was also like a warning to judges around the country, don't touch this. In other words, Mr. Garçon was welcome to investigate all, all war criminals all over the world, but not in his own country. Right. Finally, uh, for the first time since Franco's death, uh, the fascist party or a neo-fascist party is coming back and, and getting enough votes to become a force in Spanish politics. Tell us more about that. Is, is it really happening? Is, is this spreading? Is Parliament now open to people like that, who are openly fascist, not just former Franco officials? For many years, we've seen the rise of the ultra-right, of ultra-right parties in many countries in Europe. And people for a while said, well, Spain is not going to have an ultra-right party. And partly because of its history, people said that the left and the right have learned these valuable lessons from what the country went through. And this is not going to happen. And I was actually on stage with Chato um, doing a Q&A for this film in December. Who's Chato? Someone, Tell us about Chato. Chato is the person you were mentioning earlier okay. who was tortured during the end of the Franco dictatorship and who lives yes. in walking distance from his torturer. Right. And so Chato and I were on stage just outside Madrid. We just screened the film and we're doing a Q&A. And someone looked at their phone and they said, well, these regional elections in Andalusia have just taken place. And this new ultra-right party has just gotten power, gotten some power in Andalusia. And it's a party, it's called Vox. And it takes very, it's an ultra-nationalist, anti-immigrant party, also is very tough on uh, abortion, is very touch, tough on even laws that would protect women from gender violence. So you're dealing with a very right-wing party. And there was a fear that Vox, in the national elections, um, when they came, would start to get power. And so on April 28th, Spain had national elections, and the Socialist Party did win the most votes. And the Socialist Party is doubtless going to end up leading, I guess, a coalition uh, and to govern Spain. But... Vox got, I think, 9 or 10% of the vote. And they're going to send, I think, 24 of the members of parliament will now come from Vox. And so it is the first time since the Franco dictatorship 
that there will be sort of ultra-right representation in the parliament. And, and some people who, who analyze it think that um, the situation with Catalonia uh, has maybe empowered Vox in some ways and given them um, an opportunity for, for some you, you, to exploit anger that, that might exist, much Definitely. the way we've seen in the United States, the, the, the way politicians here have exploited anger or disappointment um, for votes. Yeah, the fact that Catalonia, uh, Spain's richest region, might possibly, theoretically, might secede has given the, the far right and the fascist quite a bit of, of uh, a shot in the arm, in other words. You know, as we were saying earlier, I mean, not teaching your history risks of actually repeating it in, in some ways. Is, is this development, although it's not limited to Spain, uh, the fact that fascism is still alive and kicking in Spain, could it have been perhaps lessened or ameliorated had Spain taught its own history in a way that's honest and open and shown movies like you from the very beginning, from 1975? You know, I, I would like to think so. But if we look at Germany or we look at other countries that actually have done so much in the education system to talk about the history, to talk about what happened in the, the Nazi period, um, there's also ultra-right parties, in, an ultra-right party in Germany. And so I think it would certainly help. I think the whole principle of what, what the film and what the activists and the victims and survivors in the film are saying is the importance of addressing the past. And I think that would really help, but tragically, I don't know if it would stop the the far right from thinking what it thinks and from reemerging at these moments of vulnerability in societies. Yeah, the idea being that ignorance is always a negative. Ignorance will help. Uh, bad things happen. Ignorance is at the basis of racism. It's at the basis of hatred. Therefore, the more you teach people about what's happened, theoretically at least, it should help <laughs> to diffuse future situations. I definitely agree with that. And that's part of why I believe so strongly that films and theater and art and poetry and music all have really valuable roles to play in social movements because some people will join a movement, but a lot more people might go see a play one night or might see a movie or might hear a singer-songwriter tell a story. And those are ways that social memory can be constructed. Those are ways that these memories are, are not forgotten. And that's part of what drives us to do our work and also drives a lot of the artists that I really admire. Nosotros y centenares de miles de víctimas nos han negado el derecho a la justicia. Quizá entre todos y todas, un poco quizá hemos colaborado ¿no? en ese silencio. Pregunta que es la vida, no la vida, lo humano, lo muy Thank you.
Robert Bahar is an Emmy-winning producer and writer. In 2012, Bahar relocated to Spain to direct and produce the documentary The Silence of Others, in collaboration with Almudena Caracedo. The Silence of Others won the Grand Jury Award at the Sheffield Documentary Festival and the 2019 Goya Award for Best Documentary Film. The film is currently screening in the U.S. theaters. It's playing in Berkeley's Rialto Cinemas Almud until Thursday, June 6th. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Mira Nabulsi. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. <laughs>